Welcome to Media and Monuments, presented by Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Media and Monuments is conversations featuring industry pros speaking on a wide range of topics of interest to media makers. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host for this week, Candace Block, and I have the honor and privilege of sitting down today with Madeline Denono, the president and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. The Institute, founded in 2004 by Academy Award-winning actor Gina Davis, is the only global research-driven advocacy organization working within the entertainment and media industry to create gender balance, foster inclusion, and impede bias and stereotyping in family entertainment media. Denono leads the Institute's strategic direction, fundraising, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, research, and financial and operational activities. Welcome to the podcast, Madeline. Thank you. I'm so honored uh, to be speaking with all of you and your listeners, and thank you so much. We're very happy to have you. Um, So for anyone who may not be familiar, how did the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media begin, and what were its initial goals? Well, one clue may be the name of our organization. Our chair and founder, Gina Davis, is a two-time Academy Award winner, lifelong advocate for women and girls. And she had a heightened awareness of how audiences, particularly female audiences, would respond to her roles as an actor. But when she took on the role of being a mom, she had another kind of awareness in terms of looking at how fictional characters were portrayed and noticed immediately a big gender disparity in terms of female characters versus male characters. And she thought it was odd in the 21st century that the content that we were showing our youngest of children was bereft of female presence. And when there were female characters, they were sidelined or their sole purpose in the story was to serve as a romantic role uh, and and she thought, I wonder if this is really true. And it was that quest for data that led her on a the largest and first ever investigation of children's content in TV and film, which led to a first ever study. And that's how the whole thing got started, her quest to have this knowledge and data to know if what she was seeing was really true. We thank her for doing that because so much uh, is able to happen moving forward now because of that and the numbers and the data. And we're going to get more into that as, as we go on. But how and when did you personally join the Institute? I had one of my own epiphanies where I had reached the level of success that I wanted and I wasn't satisfied. And I thought, could I use my power for good? which may sound very pithy uh, to some of your (laughs) listeners. And I went on my own investigation to speak with other executives that had made a transition from for-profit, from specifically running businesses in the entertainment industry to running nonprofits. And to make a long story short, because we don't have all day to be together, that's (laughs) what led me to a very fateful uh, meeting with Gina. And when we met and after we spoke, I had all these ideas for her. I said to her, what do you want? And she said, I want world domination. And I said, (laughs) okay. 
And the first thing I did is had her speak at a closing keynote at the United Nations. (laughs) And it's kind of been like that ever since. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's a great fit because you've been there for what, over 13 years now or something. Or, isn't that right? Yeah, that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> well, that's that's amazing, uh, clearly. And you're doing great work. The Institute has been you know, growing. They do more and more now. Women in Film and Video, or WIF as we shorten it to, we provide educational and networking opportunities for filmmakers, but we advocate for gender parity in front of and behind the camera and highlight achievements of women in media. So our organization and your institute definitely align in our objectives and goals. And today, I hope that a lot of our listeners can learn more about like what an amazing resource the Gina Davis Institute is, and also just get more inspiration for pushing forward in our shared missions and goals. So the, the institute provides hard data to help fuel the changes needed to reach more equality in media. Can you talk to us about the power of the data and how focusing on the numbers and highlighting the truths of where we stand has helped media makers see a better path forward or perhaps see like how they need to improve? Absolutely. You can't measure what you can't see. And mm-hmm. data has been the key to help our partners like yourselves, people who are members of uh, Women in Film and Video, to have data to help them make informed business decisions versus finger pointing versus Mm -hmm. just opinion. And when we think that there may be progress in terms of seeing more female characters in TV or in film as leads, until you have the data, uh, that was the only way to really recognize, well, no, for the most part, it had been a three to one ratio of male characters to female characters, actually up until 2019. And when you look at an intersectional point of view, which we do, it's not just gender, it's the intersection of gender, race, ethnicity. And it's the intersection of gender and the LGBTQIA community and people with disabilities and you know age 50 plus and large body type. That's where you see progress is moving, but certainly not at parity. And we have hit the parity number, um, and it lingers about at parity for female lead characters when it comes to popular programming that children are watching. Uh, And it was a a high in 2018, uh, and now it's about 48.8%, but you do have to take into consideration the disruption of the pandemic. And the same thing when we look at race, ethnicity, we do see a lot of, you know, progress, um, not completely at parity when you think about people of color being probably over 40%. And when it comes to the LGBTQIA community, which is about 7% of our uh, American population, it's about 1% for lead characters and you know, even in our recent TV study, we found that there were no leading characters with any type of disability. And in 2019, it was only 0.3%. So there's a lot of this, which is just glacial. So we use an intersectional lens to how we apply it. Now, on the positive side, when we speak to creators and we say to them, okay, you've heard the data, what are you doing with it? When we've surveyed them, they have said, you know, 89% have changed one or more of their projects. And we have specific examples of major institutions, you know, embracing 
uh, not only diversity, equity, inclusion behind the camera, but in front of the camera and have leaned in to, you know, our tools and a lot of other the resources that are out there. So there is absolutely an intent when it comes to major content creators and distributors to have a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative, and to also figure out what's the best way for them to measure how they're doing. We even, um, in season two, had two episodes on, you know, inclusion and disability inclusion and all that as well. It's it's nice to see these things discussed more and talked about. It does seem really helpful to see the numbers because as a society and a culture, we're used to the way it was. When we see the changes, we think they're bigger than maybe they are. And I think it's important to see the data to prove that we still have that room to grow. But in, in terms of the positive changes, as you were mentioning, you have the data that backs up who we see on the screens. And a lot of times that does inspire people. Like even you you all say, if she can see it, she can be it. So how encouraging is it to see phenomenon such as like the CSI effect take hold um, and inspire women and girls to take on different careers and activities because they're now seeing it on screen? Actually, uh, in addition to the CSI effect, uh, we have the privilege of working with uh, 20th century on the Scully effect, hashtag Scully effect. Oh, okay. Uh, Joe was on air, I think from 2003 to 2013. And they had this hypothesis that the amazing character of Scully played by Gillian Anderson really influenced a lot of women and girls who were old enough to watch the show at the time to pursue careers in STEM. And so we conducted a survey few thousand women and girls that would have been able to watch the show. And we found that as a result of that, 63% of them working in STEM are doing so because of that character played by Jillian Anderson, because she was iconic at the time. Actually, it was, I think, 1993 to 2013. We'd have to fact check me on that. And she was iconic. She you had a, uh, a, scientific mind. She used logic. She didn't need to be saved. And at that time, there were very few, if not any, female characters with that type of uh, portrayal. And so it shows you, you know, the power of what the media can do in terms of influencing change. I mean, what happens in the make-believe world can absolutely play out in the real world. And we see examples of that all all the time. Yeah. Even from like more girls taking up archery after, um, brave and, um, all the hunger games movies and all of that. I remember that my name's Candace. So everyone with Katniss kept asking if I was taking archery and everything after that. But yeah, I mean, just, just showing what's possible is so great. And I think as, as the whole world will benefit from them. And that's what I, th- I love about the the focus from your institute on young, impressionable girls as well, because that's where they're being formed and seeing what they can go after, you know? So it's not like a third career or something that now they're seeing they can do. It's something that from the onset, they could say, I like this. I see it that it's possible. And now I can pursue that. So I think it's absolutely wonderful what what you all are doing with that um, and helping us see the the positive effects. Because positive effects, I think, are, are just as encouraging or sometimes more so than seeing the, the negative as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, I love that, as you mentioned before, um, that you started with gender, but you do 
analyze six different categories, gender, race, and ethnicity, LGBTQI plus uh, disability, age, body type, all of that. Um, so what did the evolution of that look like? Like, when did you start adding more of those in, in the Institute, like for w- the scope? And then what's the importance of that? We've always looked at the intersection of gender, you know, and race, ethnicity. And very early on, we started thinking about intersectionality, you know, whereby marginalized communities can have overlapping, you know, issues. And what we found is that a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives were kind of siloed. You would have ERGs or affiliate groups within companies, and it was, you know, focused on, you know, race or disability or LGBTQIA, but no one was really looking at it intersectionally. And any, you know, we could be a female who's part of the LGBTQIA community who has a disability, who's 50 plus, who has a larger body type in one person. So it's always been important to look at the whole picture. What is the percentage of, you know, 50 plus? And it's always, you know, 2%. Uh, so, So there's a lot of work to do when you really look at how do we reflect our society? And you're talking about, you know, populations that are 20% plus, you know, when it comes to disability and age 50 plus of our population. These are big sectors of our population and they want their stories to be told. So of those, are there ones that you see where we need like the most work compared to others? Which are the ones that are the most desperately needing the work right now? Absolutely. When it comes to LGBTQIA, disability, a large body type, you know, age 50 plus, you know, just mm-hmm. not moving. The numbers are really not moving. Uh, so we definitely need a lot more, you know, attention on that. And of course, we want to compliment our partners at GLAAD who've been doing this work for the LGBTQIA community uh, longer than us. And we support everything uh, that they do, you know, as well. Uh, but yeah, Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, in 2022, there were a number of high profile and like well-reviewed LGBTQ plus films, Um, things like Fire Island, Bros, spoiler alert, and things like that. But um, if they don't do as well in the box office, does that hurt the cause or is it still just good to see stuff out there and that's part of the process? Like, I don't know how much COVID might've still affected a lot of these things in terms of like draws for, for numbers of people in theaters. Is it making it harder for people to pitch these stories with those types of leads if they don't immediately do massive success financially? Well, there's different definitions of success. So when you think about how, deeply disrupted the theatrical uh, industry um, has been uh, because of COVID and it still hasn't regained the kind of prominence in terms of the proliferation of films coming to market. You know, there's a lot of different ways to look at the investment. Sometimes the investment may not prove out in the theater, but the investment may prove out when you look at streaming and rental opportunities for streaming and SVOD, and there's many ways to recapture it. So at the end of the day, after two years, um, has the return on investment, you know, been made, you know, how are you defining success? 
And then uh, you look at uh, audiences and the power of social media and Rotten Tomatoes and a lot of these other outlets where there's a lot of discovery that's happening. And so to your point, while people were not flooding to movie theaters, they are flooding, you know, to streaming and word of mouth and, and social media has led many people to discover films that didn't have, say, a wide theatrical run because of COVID. Uh, so, so there's a lot of components that would go into how are you defining it as, you know, a, a financial success. I was curious, how do you think that like the Me Too movement helped expose the pervasiveness of the problem of like the gender parity movement? Was the Me Too movement like a big spark that helped keep doing what we're doing in terms of creating gender parity? So there's many lanes to looking at diversity, equity, inclusion. Our work at the Institute is focused on what's happening on screen and how is that playing out in the real world? When you look at Me Too, you're looking at pay equity, you're looking at safety, you're looking at conscious bias, because everyone has known the numbers, particularly when you look at female directors or uh, uh, independent filmmakers getting access to capital to produce, say, their second film. Everyone has known the bias for since the beginning of the, of the industry. That's always been pervasive. Me Too... Um, I believe, has allowed uh, people to have a voice and to not be afraid to use that voice if they have been sexually assaulted, if they have been discriminated against. And it's opened that floodgate where, you know, talent of, of all natures, whether they're an actor or a writer or et cetera, um, have the opportunity to speak up where they weren't able to speak up. In parallel of that, I do believe sincerely that the leading uh, entertainment entities have put in place a zero tolerance in their companies in order to safeguard and also provide opportunities for people to speak up. And hopefully the next generation that's coming up will not encounter the issues and the scenarios that have been going on for decades and decades and decades. So I think it's been excellent and hopefully it will be systemic change and not something that just happened during a moment of time. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, but I think it's been you know wonderful to give a voice to you know, the voiceless. And removing some of those barriers now then so people can fill more of those roles and have more influence in all levels of media making. As we've seen, and you pointed out, a lot of this growth is glacial. It's slow. But we've noticed because of that, you see women stepping up and founding their own production companies. You have things like Hello Sunshine and Brownstone Productions, Freckle Films, Flower Films, Little Stranger. How important are these production companies for films and shows to show this success of the gender parity? Like how important is it for them to be created and move this message forward that this is how it should be done and it's good to do it this way and it's successful to do it this way? Well, what's been very heartening is to see these very powerful 
actors and talents take control of not only their destiny, but opening up the doors for others. And I think uh, what Reese Witherspoon has done with Hello Sunshine has been phenomenal in being able to create content for other people and to really pay it forward. And I think Jessica Chastain and, you know, many, many others are doing the same thing. And it's been wonderful because it creates, you know, a pipeline, not only for actors, but also when you look at, you know, Ava DuVernay and what she's done with Queen's Sugar and you look at Melissa Rosenberg, where on a six to 13 episode TV show, that's 13 different female directors uh, and and writers and et cetera. So it really creates a, a pipeline and a tremendous amount, you know, of opportunities. Yeah. And a, and a chance to, to build a body of work that sometimes if women haven't yet gotten in to do certain things, uh, a lot of times they've been held back by saying, well, you haven't done this or you haven't done that, but it's the work and the project so people can get that experience and have those resumes of everything. Do you think we're going to see more of those coming out or hopefully will it get to a point where it doesn't have to be a specific mission in it, but all production companies kind of have the same goal of this gender parity? Uh, I would love in the next five years to be sitting on a beach with a pina colada saying, okay, we're done. (laughs) Would love that more than anything. But yeah, these, these are, these are uh, constant, constant struggles that we all have to keep working on. So in making sure that we are working on them, uh, there are projects that when you make them some already like these ones kind of pass those tests, but there, you know, there's these tests that people can check their projects against to see about gender parity, simple ones like the Bechdel test and all that. But the Institute has two amazing research tools that you use for pre- and post-production evaluation of content. It's the Gina Davis Inclusion Quotient, or the GDIQ, and Spell Check for Bias. Can you tell us more about these tools? Absolutely. We have been blessed and very fortunate to have Google as a partner going all the way back to 2013. And they wanted to help us answer the question if machine learning could contribute to how we measured content and could it be applied in a way to help us go deeper and faster. And that is how uh, the Gina Davis, GDIQ, GD, what does that stand for? My goodness, Gina Davis Inclusion (laughs) Quotient. And also we were blessed to find a technology partner in uh, USC School of Viterbi, which is the engineering school at USC, led by Dr. Sri Narayan and his SAIL laboratory. Fabulous group of engineers to help us create it, and we've been partners ever since. And what it allowed us to do is to automate a complicated you know, process of examining imagery. And we use a hybrid methodology because you can't use AI for everything, as everyone knows. We have a team of expert human coders, which is led by Dr. Meredith Conroy, who is our vice president of research and insights. We have a lot of social scientists, data scientists on our team, and we use a hybrid methodology. And so when it comes to gender, screen and speaking time, age, even skin tone, we're able to apply, you know, machine learning and taking advantage of that. But when it comes to looking at 
other identities and other things like sexism, racism, like those are things, those are nuances that you can't extract with AI. And GDIQ has been used clearly for audits and benchmarking where people in advertising, TV and film will come to us and say, I want to know how we're doing. I, how do I know where to go if I don't know where we are? And so we've been able to analyze thousands and thousands of global advertising, film, television, and been able to work publicly and privately on that. While we were doing that, and if you think about it, it all starts with a script, right? How do you create a tool that could be an intervention? How do you help people catch these things in the beginning? And that's where we've partnered with, again, uh, USC Viterbi School of Engineering and working with kind of a text-based AI, um, which also is led by human expert coders. And we look at scripts, we look at the words. And when you were talking about tests, we look at who is showing up and how are they showing up? Because when people are reading scripts for green light, reading scripts to do coverage, they're not using uh, a DEI lens per se. So we'll walk it through and look at everybody who's actually speaking. Whereas a lot of people may be thinking about the top of the call sheet, but there could be a hundred characters that are contributing dialogue that may be on camera at some point in time. Those are opportunities. And that's how we break down a script. So it's different than how people may normally break down a script. And we'll look at it. Are there female characters? Are there non-binary characters? Are there LGBT characters? If they are, how are they showing up? How are they being described? And that's the different tests. And then we'll make recommendations and we just flag things that we notice. And then it's really up to the creator because it's very important that you protect the authenticity of the storyteller. And we're not going to tell anybody what to do. And we're not going to invade their story, but we can flag these things. And then it's up to them to say, oh, I didn't realize that this character has 50 lines of dialogue. And hmm, maybe that could be a person with you know, disabilities, or it could be BIPOC, or it could be X, Y, and Z. And again, stay consistent to the authentic voice of the storyteller. And uh, our partners at NBC Universal have been using it extensively, and many other partners. And we're happy to be in service and happy to have a tool because it's easier to fix things on the front end than on the back end, as I'm sure you know. And your your audience at uh, you know whiff so um, so it's been uh, very very useful. That's wonderful. Again, showing the power of sort of technology and science and numbers and things like that to to help and to expedite the process and make it simpler and more streamlined as well. Is that something that like anyone can use? If someone wanted to be able to take advantage of something like spellcheck for bias or or the GDIQ, how could they do that? They would have to reach out to us and we have different ways that we partner with people depending on if it's a onesie or depending on if it's a company that wants to apply it. So there's fluidity in how uh, we can partner with people and we always welcome partnership. Excellent. The research and the final study reports that you do, they're all available on your website, correct? Yes. So it's really important to us that when we have a study, like for example, we were very privileged in June to release our first study about the portrayal of caregivers in TV with an eye on how men are and, and are not 
portrayed as as caregivers and how that informs uh, how women are portrayed mostly as caregivers. That was funded by Robert Wood Johnson and partnership with Equamundo. And then in November, we were very pleased to go back to Google for the first time in New York in many years prior to the uh, COVID and present our new TV studies, looking at family television and popular television uh, for children. And so those studies are released publicly. But in addition to that, uh, we have been doing virtual events and we've just started doing in-person events for our members. So we do have a membership. And even if you're not able to come to, say, New York or Los Angeles, we have an on-demand library of decades of panels and research presentations that are made available um, to our members and we provide a lot of professional development. So we would encourage everyone to check out, you know, our membership. It's a year-long membership. And then when we do have these big studies, we do release them on our website. Yeah. And you also have a newsletter that people could uh, subscribe to without becoming a member and still get some great information there. But it sounds like a really amazing resource. It's wonderful what you all provide and for people to be able to tap into the full force of everything that you all are doing. Definitely go ahead and check out Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, their website, cjane.org. We're going to put all this in the show notes as well, so you know where to get to all of that. We can obviously go on and on about the power of inclusion and where we need to keep improving, but to stay within our time, (laughs) let's just maybe end with if you would have a suggestion for the most effective one or two tools or guidelines or just advice in general for filmmakers and content creators committed to this mission of reaching parity in media? Um, What would you leave them with? And then further, is there any advice for uh, listeners and people who support these objectives and missions, but don't make media themselves? Well, I would say for storytellers, use an intersectional lens, you know, do a pass, look at your content, really look at all the characters. Don't forget about the smaller characters that may not be described or really think about how they can contribute and how you can kind of give a nod to reinforce that there's opportunities for diversity, equity, you know, in inclusion. Number one, I would say as consumers and parents and educators, pay attention to what your children are watching. There's ways to have conversations. You don't have to censor what they're watching. Uh, but it's important to think about what they're watching and to help them develop a critical lens for how they're viewing, you know, content mm-hmm. and stories. And also, you'd be surprised the power of social media. You all have a voice, and anyone who is producing or promoting content, they're paying attention to your comments. And so, you'd be surprised the kind of influence that you you can have. Wonderful. All excellent advice. Um, There's so much great stuff, so many wonderful studies that you all have done. I highly encourage anyone listening to please check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and I so admire everything that the Gina Davis Institute for Gender and Media is doing and all that you're doing to help support all of that. And I know that all of us here in the WIF community appreciate the hard work to shape a more inclusive and fair future for all humans where we can see all of ourselves in media. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Media and Monuments, a service of Women in Film and Video 
in Washington, D.C. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. For more information about WIF, please visit our website at WIF as in Frank, V as in Victor, dot org. love hearing engaging stories from women working in entertainment, then you must subscribe to the Women Crush Wednesdays podcast from New York Women in Film and Television, also known as NYWIFT. We present insightful and entertaining conversations with industry leaders above and below the line. You can find all of our episodes online at nywift.org, that's N-Y-W-I-F-T dot org, or on various podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, and CastBox. Subscribe to Women Crush Wednesdays from Nywift today. And until we meet again, keep on crushing it.